blood moons, handedness, and disproving God. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. We've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. Listen, if you are thinking about joining me in New York City at Forefront Church, I do want to let you know there's only a handful of tickets left, so don't wait. It's almost sold out. I've also got a really big event coming up in Tallahassee at Good Samaritan Church, my home church I'd love to see you at. But for now, let's get it started. Hi, Mike. My name is Karen, and I am from the Republic of Panama. And my question is this. What is the science behind being left-handed? In history, left-handed people were feared and even considered evil. We have examples of people like Genghis Khan and Attila the Hunt and Jack the Ripper. But we also have examples of world leaders like Julius Caesar, Joan of Arc, Napoleon, and four of the last seven presidents in the United States have been left-handed, to name a few. There's a lot of other world leaders outside of the United States that are left-handed. So my question is, are left-handed people more prone to be leaders, or do they become leaders because they have to overcome the struggle of living in a right-handed world. Do we know if Jesus was left-handed? I appreciate you looking into that. Thanks, and keep up the good work. Oh, man, that was awesome. <laughs> I'll start with the last question first. I, I couldn't find any, uh, any reference uh, to Jesus' handedness. <laughs> That's amazing. That's, oh man, I love it. Okay, so let's talk about the weird and fairly mysterious science behind handedness. And to do so, let's first talk about something really basic in human anatomy. Humans are a type of animal uh, which have bilateral symmetry. We have two mirrored halves, left and right. Um, now, other animals may not have bilateral symmetry. Uh, dogs and cats do. For example, uh, starfish don't. Starfish have radial symmetry. Uh, worms would also be an animal that uh, has, can have a radial symmetry. Um, but humans are bilateral. We have two mirrored halves. But that symmetry isn't perfect by any means. Your heart isn't exactly halfway across your chest. It's toward the left side of your chest, and the two halves of your heart aren't equal in size or function. Uh, Your stomach is tilted on its axis, Uh, so that's why lying on your left side can help relieve heartburn. Uh, And even your brain isn't perfectly symmetrical. The functions of the brain aren't mirrored exactly left and right. The easiest example would be your temporal lobes. Typically, the left temporal lobe is responsible for language, while typically the right temporal lobe is more associated with rhythm and pitch and other uh, musical phenomenon associated with sound. 
So, but I say typically for a reason, because sometimes people's language is associated with their right temporal lobe and their uh, pitch and rhythm is associated with their left. So their brains end up being backwards compared to most people. Really interesting. And that will relate to our discussion of handedness. Now, there are some genetic conditions that can flip the symmetry of the organs. So, for example, someone's heart is on the right side of their body or their their stomach is tilted in the opposite direction from normal. Uh, And that's caused by genetic markers. Also interesting in a discussion of handedness. The way the bilateral symmetry is flipped is flipped the wrong way compared to a baseline in the human population. Now, humans are not the only animals that have this kind of asymmetric bilateral symmetry. Polar bears and chimpanzees, for example, both show handedness. But interestingly enough, those species show about 50-50 distribution between right and left side dominance in their handedness. Although I suppose polar bears don't really have hands, uh, technically speaking. Um, But human populations are closer to 90-10 with uh, right-hand dominance being that 90 percentile. So we have this dramatic departure from other asymmetric, bilaterally symmetric organisms. I really like that sentence. I enjoyed it, creating it a lot. Uh, So now one study has shown that uh, there is one genetic predictor or genetic correlation with being left-handed, and that's... That basically said that the amount of mutation, the amount of difference between the two copies of the PCSK6 gene showed a positive correlation with being left-handed. Now, of course, correlation does not equal causation. Uh, it was merely something that was interesting. And it's interesting because that is a gene that is, in fact, related to body symmetry. Now, alone, it is not sufficient to predict Handedness and genetic scientists theorize that it's likely that handedness emerges from many more genes working in concert with similar types of uh, mutation disparity. The problem is, in order to get the kind of statistical data we need to make those findings and data, we would need studies not with hundreds or thousands, but hundreds of thousands of participants. And uh, it's tough to get funding for handedness on that scale. So it may be some time until we have a definitive answer in our uh, genetic research on handedness. I think a more interesting question than the absolute genes behind handedness, and again, scientists generally believe now that it is related to genes, is uh, why do we have this split that differs from other species, this 90-10 right-hand preference in our species. Of course, our motor cortex is cross-wired. Your left motor cortex is generally responsible for the functions on the right side of your body and vice versa. Some scientists think that the development of language in the left temporal lobe created this normative pressure for human DNA to produce left-dominant brains, and that's why there are so many right-handed people. That was interesting. It could be linked to language. Uh, One researcher even thought and had some findings that said that uh, an an inversion in your language center, um, having your language emerge from your right temporal lobe, was a predictor for being left handed. Further studies haven't necessarily borne that out. 
here's what we do know. 10 to 12% of us are left-handed. And two-thirds of left-handed people today around the world face discrimination. Today, 2015, two-thirds of people who are left-handed face severe discrimination, especially in China and Muslim cultures where there's a particularly hard bias or um, cultural normative pressure against left-handedness. For example, China will report that only 1% of its students are left-handed. In many languages, including modern Western cultures, the word left has a derogative connection in its etymology. The origin of that word had to do something with uh, clumsy or obscene or or something else. But as you mentioned in your question, there are some really exceptional left-handed people. Uh, in the science world, both Carl Sagan and Albert Einstein were left-handed. I suspect that the link between presidents and prominent scientists being disproportionately represented by left-handed people is probably a result of the struggle with adversity. Because in trials, right and left-handed people don't necessarily show um, significant differences in cognitive ability or temperament or, or any, any markers. Although in some cultures, left-handedness is a predictor for a shorter life. That said, <laughs> knowing that left-handed people face, frankly, greater adversity than the rest of us every time they try to use scissors or a spiral notebook, in our culture or in other cultures where they're actively pressured out of their natural bias towards how they use their hands, we may have unclear science, but we know we need to hug our Southpaw friends and uh, validate who they are and how they were made. Uh, it's really interesting to me that, you know, handedness is frankly a controversial thing around the world and not too long ago was controversial in American culture. We tried to normalize left-handed people by forcing them to write with their right hands and to orient their papers and all those sorts of things in primary education the way right-handed children did. And that is rough. So today, do yourself a favor and hug a lefty. About a week ago, I had a chance to head down to Orlando and be a part of the relevant podcast 10th anniversary live event. It was a ton of fun. And while I was there, I got to meet the famous Eddie from the Relevant Podcast, and he actually submitted a question for the show via Twitter, the ultra-rare hashtag AskScienceMike question, and here we go. Is there any scientific discovery or revelation that could disprove God's existence? Now, Eddie is a, typically a pretty fun guy on the show, but he definitely... <laughs> threw down a hardcore question for his first question on Ask Science Mike. So, uh, Eddie, I'm going to give it my best shot. So to talk about what science uh, proves or disproves, let's first talk about what science is and how it works, because there is considerable confusion about the mechanisms and claims of science in popular culture, and that confusion is probably slightly amplified in Christian culture. So, Science is built upon a philosophy called empiricism, and empiricism, boiled down, says one thing. You should place confidence in a belief that is proportional to the evidence you have supporting that belief. In Jerry Maguire language, show me the data. We believe things we have evidence to support. 
That's how empiricism works. Empiricism, therefore, minimizes other ways of knowing, like revelation or personal experience. Science wants your data. Science wants your measurement in order to be confident in a belief. Now, because of that, science doesn't actually prove or disprove anything absolutely. All scientific knowledge is provisional and dependent on the quality of the data. And because we know through data that human beings are not perfect data collection or analyzing machines, we understand that any and all knowledge could be undermined by future data, even our most cherished assumptions, even our best theories could ultimately be shown incomplete. For example, Newtonian physics, which we still use to make bridges, do most of the engineering work in the world, is not a complete description of motion or gravity. Relativity, Einstein relativity, which we need in order to make GPS satellites, is a more complete picture, but we know even that is incomplete. Now, the process that we get this knowledge from is called methodological physicalism, which is a really fancy word for a simple process. One, you have a hypothesis or an idea that you want to test, and then you use observation and experiment to gain or lose confidence in your hypothesis. That means your hypothesis has to make some kind of testable prediction in order to be a scientific idea. You see, many ideas are not falsifiable. Science can't disprove that I can fly, for example. It can only prove or give confidence in the claim that I am not presently flying, that I've never shown any capacity to fly, and that no human being in history has ever been recorded flying without some kind of mechanical aid. So, therefore, a scientific idea about my claim to fly is that there is no evidence to support that conclusion. Uh, That's why science uses something called the null hypothesis, which is a statistical model, a basis to falsify claims. The null hypothesis starts by assuming I can't fly, and it must be proven that I can Now, science is all about uncovering facts about the natural world. And because of this, there's actually several things that science can't do. Number one, science can't make aesthetic or subjective claims. Science can't tell you what's beautiful. Uh, Science can't tell you uh, (laughs) what tastes good. Science can tell you what percentage of people report something tasting good. But it can't make an aesthetic judgment. Science also can't make moral judgments. There's no way to derive a moral ethic from science. Science can't make claims about supernatural phenomenon because science only measures what happens in the natural world. Science doesn't tell you what to do with scientific knowledge. It's not a moral system. So science can tell you how to split the atom but it won't tell you if you should make nuclear power or an atom bomb with that capacity. Methodological physicalism, empiricism, science, all they do is give us facts about the physical world. Now, these limitations aren't the default victories that many believers and apologists make them out to be. For example, science doesn't speak to the supernatural because they're are no reliable scientific accounts of the supernatural interacting with physical reality ever in human history. 
There are no accounts of ghosts or resurrections or gods in human history that are measured with scientific confidence, which is why skeptics tend to reject supernatural claims. So God exists is a claim, for example. And atheists and naturalists would say that it's a claim that lacks the evidence to support it. That's not that science can disprove God or that it's its job. What they would claim is that it's believers who can't prove God. We have a fundamental difference here between presuppositionalists who say God is self-evident and empiricists through the null hypothesis who say nothing is self-evident. All beliefs require evidence in order to be valid. Now, people like me say, which God? (laughs) Which God doesn't exist? Because humanity has defined God in countless ways. Even Christianity produces competing claims about God. If we just restrict ourselves to Western Protestantism, then you have this ongoing debate about Calvinism and how many points of Calvinism versus Arminianism. Uh, There are the differing ideas about God's character, God's nature, and the way God interacts with the world, even in the Christian faith. So no, science can't disprove God. But science can tell us some claims about God are more or less likely based on observation and experiment. But it doesn't tell us what to do with that knowledge. And here's the point in which faith becomes so valuable. Faith helps us assign moral judgment and personal meaning and societal meaning to the facts and the information we learn from science. Faith can help us decide it is much better to split the atom to make electricity and power a well than it is to make a bomb to end human life. That's the power of faith, in my opinion, the power of believing in God. Hi, Mike. Eric Anderson from Minneapolis here. So one of the things I've appreciated most about your work is how you're able to communicate in a clear, open, and non-judgmental fashion, even in situations where there's disagreement. My question is regarding a specific situation and how I might learn to better communicate and question like you do. So I recently stumbled upon the Twitter account of one of my friends at church. I previously knew that his theological beliefs were a fair amount more conservative than mine, but we'd never gotten into details or meaningful conversation about it. I started browsing his Twitter history and was shocked and saddened by what I saw. Let me outline a few of the points. So he's a young earth creationist, completely denies the theory of evolution, And he also denies the existence of any scientific evidence that in any way gives credence to the theory of evolution. In fact, he says that people who hold to the theory are beholden to atheist religious dogma. He thinks that all scientists are corrupt and are merely just there patting each other's backs. He believes that it's impossible to be a Christian if you don't believe in the young earth. And all of this is also accompanied by the typical litany of inflammatory tweets about the government, taxation, the president liberals, and Planned Parenthood. 90% of this person's tweets are him retweeting various other people that hold similar views, and anytime somebody tries to engage him in honest conversation, they're shut down. It's clear that there's zero room for negotiation or real conversation. The activity I see is negative, closed-minded, judgmental, 
and intentionally inflammatory. So my question is not, how can I refute his claims about creation, evolution, etc.? Rather, my question is this, how can I engage this person in conversation about these things? I know I have zero chance of convincing him to change his mind, and honestly, that's not my goal. My hope is to be able to somehow help him understand that, one, there are many scientists and evolutionists uh, in our church and even on the church staff, and if given the chance, how would he address his concerns to these people? Would he speak to them the same way he speaks about scientists in his Twitter posts? And two, we're called to extend grace to those around us, and not to judge and disrespect them on topics that are very much separated from Christian dogma. It's a really tough situation, and one that I need to wade into with much prayer, forethought, grace, and humility. So thank you for any guidance you're able to give. I think it's really admirable that you don't want to change his views on something. But what if you went further? What if you didn't even try to engage him in a conversation that opened him to other perspectives? What if that's not your job? What if it's never your job to control other people or modify their beliefs? I'm not saying that in some absolute sense. Let's just do a thought experiment. What if we all lived our lives in a way where we executed our responsibility for the way we think about things and the way we act in the world above all else. That thought experiment led me to change the way I lived. I used to be a conservative evangelical Christian, and through that I held other people accountable to Scripture. I advocated for moral behaviors for people who were Christians, even people who weren't Christians, and I spent a lot of energy trying to control and change others so that they would adhere to what I understood as the will of God. And I'm at a point in my life now where I've realized I could be wrong about absolutely anything. Not only that, a lot of people, it's counterproductive to try to move them from where they are. You see, you can't lead people where they don't want to go. That's a quote I've stolen from my friend Rob Bell. Uh, but it's like just such a, a freeing understanding of how people operate. You can't lead people where they don't want to go. You see, today, I don't spend any energy trying to convince people to believe what I believe or to change their beliefs at all. None. And you say, well, Mike, you host a podcast where you <laughs> explain what you believe about things. Absolutely. I answer questions from people that ask me. I don't really insert myself into conversations where I'm not invited. Now, I stand for the oppressed. You know, I'm active in a dialogue about, uh, you know, white supremacy in America and the way people of color are treated. I frequently speak on topics related to LGBTQ equality. I always speak for those whose voice are crushed in the weight of modern society. But I don't try to change people's beliefs if they're not ready to talk. My energy is focused completely on helping people and learning all I can about life and about our universe. And here's why. What would this man say if he emailed me after reading your Twitter feed? He would probably say, here's a person who believes that people can believe in an old earth and believe in evolution and go to heaven, and because of that, people are going to hell. He would find your beliefs, what, dangerous and misguided. 
We already know what it looks like when people try to make opposing arguments and dismiss each other's viewpoints. It happens all the time. We call it the internet. Have you ever read YouTube comments? Oh, it's terrible. I don't play that game. What I have found is it's best to follow the work that only you can do to heal the world, to stand up for the oppressed, and to be a good neighbor. Do what you can to walk after Jesus and be like him. And what I've found, oddly enough, is when you do this, other people start to walk along with you. So sometimes, yes, Jesus walked into the temple uninvited and flipped tables. We also call him the Son of God. (laughs) So I'm really cautious about when I flip tables. The rest of the time, I try to live like Jesus did and engage people in conversation and healthy relationships that of their own choice and own volition enter into my life. I am not the Savior of the world, and I will never be the Savior of the world. I am a Christian because I believe that job is already taken. Our last question this week came from the email box, and it reads, Hey, Science Mike, thanks so much for your show. I have a question regarding blood moons. I grew up in a very conservative evangelical culture where the end times was heavily discussed within my church. Pastors that I regularly listen to constantly assert that we are living in the end times and that the blood moons are an absolute symbol of this. This topic has always provoked such great anxiety in my life, but I'm beginning to realize that this fear is not of God. What does science say about blood moons? Is this phenomenon something Christians should be conscious of? I have great news. You have nothing to worry about or be anxious about when it comes to blood moons, and here's why. I'm sure you've noticed that at the end of the day, The sun sets, and when the sun sets, it goes from its yellow, white hue during the day to a brilliant red. And the sky goes from a a sky blue to shades of gold and purple and deep red uh, as the sun falls lower and lower onto the horizon. Why do you think that happens? Because our atmosphere is composed in such a way that it scatters blue light. Our sky is not blue, but we see the blue light being scattered by the atmosphere. That's why the sky appears blue to us. And because of that, any object that's beyond our atmosphere and is near the horizon, the light that comes from it passes through more atmosphere than something directly overhead, right? Because you're on the surface of a sphere, and near that sphere, there's more air between you and whatever you're looking at. And that means more blue light gets scattered away. That's why sunsets are red. Now, blood moons are times when from local position, the moon, a full moon, is very near the horizon. And that means more blue light gets scattered, and what? the moonlight appears more red than normal. Now, interestingly enough, this is a local phenomenon. On the same night, you have a blood moon on one part of the Earth's surface. You have a normal moon somewhere else 
because it's not close to the horizon from that vantage point. So blood moons aren't some global phenomenon. The moon's not actually turning red. All that's happening is like the sun, the moon, the full moon is getting near the horizon. And because this is an astronomical phenomenon, they're incredibly predictable. We know when blood moons are coming because we understand the relative position of the moon's orbit to the Earth's surface and where a blood moon will appear from different points on the surface of the Earth. Blood moons are completely predictable, completely normal astronomical phenomenon, but they are really fun to watch. So I think Christians should be conscious of blood moons because it's a beautiful show in the sky and part of this beautiful creation that we've been gifted. They are not a sign that the end is near, but they are a sign that it could be a fun time to go out and look at the night sky. Another week and another episode of Ask Science Mike is in the books. I want to thank you all for listening. I have been really shocked by the recent increase in growth rate of a show that was already growing really quickly. I, I actually had a moment where I, <laughs> I don't know, I felt had this overwhelming emotion when I looked at the numbers uh, from episode 32's first day. It was a new record for the show and really surprised me. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for rating on iTunes, doing all the things to make the show successful. I want to see you in person. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, I'll be in New York really soon, just about a week and a half from when you hear this episode. There are like a handful of tickets left for that event. So when you're hearing this, if you're thinking about seeing me in New York, stop thinking about it. Take action. Go to AskScienceMike.com, click on events, and you'll find a link to where you can buy tickets. While you're there, you can see other events I've got coming up. We're doing a Peacemakers Weekend at uh, my church, Good Samaritan in Tallahassee. I've gotten word already that friends from surrounding areas are going to travel in. It's going to be a Friday night, Saturday morning, Sunday morning thing, completely free. We're going to talk about the science of peacemaking. We're going to have breakout sessions with a lot of my friends and, and people who do interesting, compelling work. I'd love to see you there. This would be a great opportunity if you've been thinking about coming to Tallahassee to see my church, some of you email me and say that you are. So this would be a great week to do that. Also, I'm going to be doing something with the Sandbox Cooperative in September. Uh, that's an organization um, that puts on events not only in person, but they're also streamed online. So if you've never gotten to see me live, you can see me live on the Internet, including the ability to ask questions live. So there'll be a live Q&A and Internet questions will come in. With the liturgists, we have an event called Belong. We're doing early in November. All this stuff is at AskScienceMike.com on the events page. So just go there. You'll see it. We've started uh, episodes of the Liturgist podcast again. Um, I was amazed at the, the numbers there too. It's quite a thing we've got going on talking about science, faith, and art and culture. It's pretty amazing that what I would have considered not too long ago to be relatively fringe or controversial topics in uh, America and certainly in Christian America are a couple of the most popular podcasts uh, on iTunes in spirituality. So thanks for that, guys. Uh, we need your questions for the show to keep going. So you can use hashtag AskScienceMike on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. An overwhelming majority of people just go to AskScienceMike.com and submit a question that way. And of course, this show is listener supported and my full-time occupation for all of you who are helping me 
live my life by donating to the program. I appreciate it. And uh, in deference to John Oliver, I am not a nonprofit and uh, you are not sending seed money. If you send me a donation, all you get is my gratitude and a podcast that keeps going. Now, every single dollar helps. There's people giving $5 a month, a dollar a month. Every single dollar helps me eat. So <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, you can cancel or change a pledge at any time. Financial hardships hit. I get it. Reduce your pledge or stop altogether. There's absolutely no commitment. Of course, Ask Science Mike is still free and will always be free. I'll never charge for the show. Uh, the show is produced by Greg Nordine. He actually does a lot of podcast producing. So if you're interested in working with Greg, you can find a link to him on AskScienceMike.com. And of course, my boy Jeff Botford wrote the theme song that people sing to me in airports. It's a very interesting uh, ritual that you guys have come up with to greet me. It cracks me up every time. So uh, he wrote that song. If you'd like catchy music, people will sing to you in airports. A link to Jeb can be found on AskScienceMike.com. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for having a conversation with me about why science and faith are not enemies every week. And I can't wait to see you next week. 